Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. So begins Psalm 1. In that gateway to the book of Psalms, we learn that happiness, blessedness, comes to the one who turns from sinful counsel and instead daily meditates upon God's word. This is the kind of life the Lord blesses, building the believer up, we're told, like a fruitful tree. And this is foundational teaching. It is absolutely essential that our relationship with God is rooted in his word. But this is not the only thing the Bible teaches about the happy life. Indeed, Psalm 1 calls us to meditate upon all of Scripture. And in context, it calls us particularly to enter the book of Psalms with this meditative frame of mind, looking for more teaching about how to lead the blessed life. There's actually some danger if we were to stop with Psalm 1. You know, we live in a time when spirituality is a popular word. Everyone seems to be on his or her own spiritual pilgrimage. For many, this leads into some form of Eastern mysticism or New Age thinking. But even Christians speak in such terms. It is possible to approach the Christian life as if all that really matters is your personal spiritual practices. You might think, as long as I'm reading my Bible and praying regularly, I'm I'm living the blessed life. You see, it's possible to have a wholly inward focus, which can actually be quite selfish. Yes, we are spiritual pilgrims in this world, but we are not on our journey alone. The structure of the book of Psalms helps us to learn this lesson. The book of Psalms is divided up into five sections, books one through five. And book one runs from Psalm 1 through the psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 41. And if you have your Bible open to Psalm 41, if you glance over at Psalm 42, you probably have a heading above it that says book two to note this structural division within the larger book. And with the exception of a few psalms without headings, all the psalms in book one are attributed to David. And so it's appropriate to look at at Psalms 1 through 41 as a particular book within a larger book. And when we do so, we note an interesting fact. The first and the last psalms of this book begin with exactly the same words. Blessed is. And what we find in Psalm 41 is a supplement to Psalm 1 another perspective on the life of the blessed. We're going to consider the psalm in three sections. First of all, blessing and divine promise announced in verses 1 through 3. Then blessing and divine promise appealed to in verses 4 through 10. Blessing and divine promise trusted in verses 11 through 13. And then we're going to take a look at the psalm through new covenant eyes to consider Christ and Psalm 41. This psalm provides an important perspective we need to maintain if we are to know a life of blessing in fellowship with our Lord. So we begin with blessing and divine promise announced in the first three verses. Psalm 41 begins, Blessed is he who considers the poor. Now, again, in Psalm 1, blessing is announced for the one who meditates upon God's law. That highlights 
personal spiritual disciplines. The one so blessed would be like a fruitful tree, but a fruitful tree is a blessing not only to itself, but to others. And Psalm 41 shows what some of that blessing looks like to others. The happy life, the blessed life, belongs to those who consider the poor. And that's the object of concern in this verse, the poor. The the Hebrew word is generally used to denote those lacking in financial resources. It's contrasted frequently with the rich. It also, in a few cases, refers to those who who are lean, who are sick, both in body or in mind. And throughout the Old Testament, provision for the basic needs of the poor is commended, which finds proverbial expression in Proverbs 19.17, where we read this, He who has pity on the poor lends to Yahweh, and he will pay back what he has given. But it's not just a matter of wisdom within the Old Testament. The laws of gleaning, which provided grain for a needy Ruth, you may recall, were a legal provision to enact this principle. Listen to this law as it's found in Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am Yahweh, your God. And so the law itself made provision for those within Israel to care for the poor and the needy. And they didn't do so well, we know that, because the prophets routinely denounced Israel for failing to attend to such needs. Now Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. And this Hebrew word translated considers is significant. It comes from the wisdom tradition in Scripture and refers to a perceptive ability to know the right response in a given situation. So more than blind compassion is involved here. It is compassion informed by understanding. Blessing comes to the one who deals wisely with the poor. We all know it's possible to deal with the poor in an unwise fashion. I think I may have shared this example with you before, but if so, just bear with me as I do so again. I remember a time back in Jackson, Mississippi, the other Jackson, the lesser Jackson, Uh, when our family went to Chick-fil-A. And outside Chick-fil-A, there was a lady saying that she needed help. She was asking for money. And I said, well, I'll I'll buy you a meal. Come in, pick what you want. And she picked something off the menu, and we went, we got our meal. And as we were coming out, we saw that she took her meal, she took her drink, and she just tossed it in the trash can. And she went back to asking for money. And it turned out, we noticed during, we started seeing her all around town at intersections and at gas stations and other places. She was just looking for money. Her need wasn't really for that food. She wanted to use that money for whatever else. Now, because of experiences like that, it's very easy to become cynical to all who are poor. And I want you to be honest with yourself and ask you, do do you do that? Do you put all the poor in the category of those who are just trying to deceive others and get what they really don't need? Do you assume everyone who is disadvantaged is a shiftless loafer? Do you reason that the poor people somehow deserve their condition because obviously they haven't worked hard enough? It is very easy to jump to conclusions like these and then use them to absolve yourself absolve yourself from any responsibility toward the poor. And brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful that we don't 
do that. You see, God doesn't give us that option. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be blessed? Then you have a responsibility to consider the poor, to seek to understand their plight, and to minister to their needs effectively. Now, this is not an easy thing to do, and I can't give you simple guidelines to implement this biblical mandate. It is a matter of wisdom, which means seeking to understand someone's true situation and finding effective means to help meet needs in both the short and the long term. Sometimes this can be done through supporting or getting involved in existing ministries with proven track records of ministering to the poor. This is often an effective way of addressing poverty in foreign lands. For example, there are various Christian development agencies and Christian missionaries that minister to the poor who can use our support. Closer to home, our Mississippi mission team will be leaving in a few weeks for our annual ministry in a poor community, Hermanville, Mississippi. Our longstanding commitment in this trip has built bridges of understanding for effective help in that community. Well, what are the poor around you? What are the situation here in Jackson? Are there people in your own neighborhood, or perhaps not your neighborhood, but your city, whose needs you could seek to address in the cause of Christ and the gospel? Frankly, it is very easy to ignore such folks, especially if you convince yourself that their poverty is somehow deserved. It is easier to ignore the poor, but is not the path to blessing. Blessed is he who considers the poor. And I expect most of us have much to learn about the needs of the poor around us. And that should be a matter of study and prayer and experience so that we might, in wisdom, exercise compassion toward them. God tells us this is the way to blessing. And again, we can link up with ministries that have a demonstrated track record of effectively working among the poor. So in Jackson, we have ministries like RIFA and Area Relief Ministries, the Care Center, the Dream Center, and others. And while it is good to support such ministries financially, as our church does, it is even more meaningful to be personally involved. Because personal relationship is the key to understanding others. And that's always the case, isn't it? If you really want to understand someone, you can only do it in the context of a personal relationship. And that becomes especially true when that person has a background and experiences that are very different from your own. Personal relationship is the best way to understand those who are different from ourselves. Well, what kind of blessings attend the life of one who considers the poor? Our passage continues with a string of divine promises. First of all, Yahweh will deliver him in time of trouble. It's literally in the day of evil. Yahweh will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. Now, trouble comes often in life. Days of evil can fall upon us suddenly. The blessed man is the one who knows the Lord's deliverance in such times. Secondly, we're told, you will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. So in addition to general adversities, general trouble, promises made here of protection from enemies, those external foes who may rise up against us. And then thirdly, Yahweh will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. And now we read of some internal, some physical trouble of sickness. And where our translation reads, you will strengthen him on his bed, the original actually says, speaking to God, 
speaking to God, you will turn all his bed. It's actually a beautiful image because it's the images of God picking up a mattress of a sickbed and either turning it around or rearranging it to comfort the one who is sick. It's a picture of God as our, our divine nurse changing our bedclothes in times of sickness, showing us that kind of compassionate care. Now, this string of promises shows that the blessed man knows God's comforting presence in times of trouble, in attacks from enemies, and in days of sickness. But note that our passage does not say that believers will be kept from times of troubles, will never experience enemies' attack, or will be spared all sickness. That would be the world's definition of the happy life. It's also the heretical teaching of the so-called health and wealth gospel, which is really a false gospel. You see, the promise is not that we'll be spared such trials, but that God will be present with us through them, and in God's presence we will find blessings. And this becomes clear as we move to the next section of our psalm, blessing and divine promise appealed to in verses 4 through 10. The middle portion of our psalm finds David appealing to the promises he had just announced in the first three verses. And the section is bracketed by the cry, Yahweh be merciful to me, in verses 4 and 10. And between those brackets, we find a description of David's desperate straits. He writes, My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it, all who hate me whisper together against me, against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him, and now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. How would you like to trade places with David in those circumstances? Any takers? I doubt it. His condition seems to combine all three things we read of earlier, adversity, enemies, and sickness. And note how bitter words are used against him by his opponents. My enemies speak evil of me. He speaks lies. All who hate me whisper together against me. An evil disease clings to him. He will rise up no more. In the New Testament, James writes that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And David is experiencing the fiery attack of evil tongues. And words can hurt, can't they? When friends, co-workers, fellow students speak evil of you, when they whisper together about you behind your back, it can sometimes be more painful than even a physical attack. And it can be especially hurtful when others rejoice in your suffering, as these enemies of David seemed to do. And then the pain is even worse when it comes from someone close to you. Listen to David's description. Even my own familiar friend, and and that literally is even the man of my peace. This was not some bare acquaintance, one who was a close friend, one who was linked with David in a bond of peace. And he also says of him, he is the one in whom I trusted. This was his confident, confidant, one who had been in a relationship of intimate trust. Those people who trust you, those people whom you trust know the most about you. And if they turn against you, they can be the bitterest of enemies. And then he says, who ate my bread 
And one commentator explains the significance of that. He writes, the sharing of bread was one of the most intimate moments in Israelite life. And meals were a time in which participants set aside all enmity and hostility. Betrayal by one who had shared bread was particularly distressing. And then finally he says that he has lifted up his heel against me, which was a sign of public rejection and betrayal. Such was David's situation, attacked by the cutting words of enemies who would rejoice over his death, racked by sickness, betrayed by an intimate associate. And in these circumstances, David appeals to divine blessing and promise. Yahweh, be merciful to me, verses 4 and 10. Heal my soul, verse 4. Raise me up, verse 10. Speaking of God to minister to him both spiritually and physically. Now, the blessed life is not free of trouble. But when trouble comes, the believer cries out to the Lord. And as the following verses show, the believer knows that the Lord hears his cry. And that brings us to our third section, blessing and divine promise trusted in verses 11 through 13. We begin reading at verse 11. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Now here we find David speaking in great confidence. He may be looking back upon God's deliverance when he writes this because his enemies did not triumph over him. Or perhaps he is actually looking forward with the eyes of faith to the Lord's deliverance which is yet to come. Either way, he trusts that the Lord is pleased with him. He says, you uphold me in my integrity. Now, David is not here claiming to be sinless. Indeed, in verse 4, he said, I have sinned against you. David knows he's a sinner. He knows he's not perfect. But he does have integrity in his determined purpose to walk in the ways of the Lord. And in context, he may be thinking of his own commitment of considering the poor with which this psalm began. As David had considered those in need, he trusted that the Lord would consider him in his need. And what is his ultimate hope? You set me before your face forever. On the basis of divine promises, David believes that he is in the presence of the Lord and he will be in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. This is the blessed life of the righteous, to know the presence of the Lord. There is no promise that you will be spared hardship. There is no guarantee that others won't rise up against you or that you will never face debilitating sickness and disease. The promise is that when these things come, according to the providence of the Lord, he is ever there with you. And no one has known the reality of Psalm 41 more deeply than our Lord and Savior which brings us to our fourth section, that is Christ in Psalm 41. We find a fulfillment of this psalm in both the ministry and the death of Jesus. Psalm 41 begins, Blessed is he who considers the poor. At the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus stood up from the in the synagogue and read from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he began to say to them, Today, 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, I came to to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to liberate the oppressed. And when John the baptizer went through a period of doubt and sent messengers to inquire of Jesus whether he was the expected Messiah, Jesus replied, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. See, Jesus perfectly lived the blessed life of one who considers the poor and needy, addressing both physical and spiritual needs. But we don't find echoes of Psalm 41 only in his ministry. Jesus knew Psalm 41, and in David's description of the desperate straits, Jesus saw prophecy of his own betrayal. As Jesus instructs his disciples at the Passover meal, we know now as the Last Supper, He says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me and has lifted up his heel against me, most assuredly I say unto you, one of you will betray me. You see, Jesus made the words of Psalm 41 his own as he faced betrayal by Judas. And if we read this psalm through new covenant eyes, we can see Christ clearly in his passion. David wrote, My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And we can hear such words echoing in the cries of the Jewish leaders and the crowds around Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. Yes, the desperate situation described by David in Psalm 41 found a greater fulfillment of even greater intensity in the suffering and death of the greater David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Like David, he also had confidence in his father, knowing that he would be raised up from the dead. His resurrection was followed by his ascension to the right hand of the Father on high, where he dwells now as our high priest. And so we read in Hebrews 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you want to know the blessed life? Don't pursue the path to happiness that the world prescribes. Instead, look to Jesus. Look to him, first of all, for your righteousness, for he ultimately is the righteous man who is described in Psalm 1. And it is by his righteousness, not your own, that you have been reconciled to God through faith. But that being the case, follow in his footsteps by meditating upon the word of God, Psalm 1. And considering the poor and needy, Psalm 41. Nurture an internal piety that evidences itself in external acts of love and compassion. And trust in the Lord's promises when trials come, because he has gone through them before you. You have a high priest who understands what it's like to be utterly rejected, to be ridiculed, to go through extreme pain, even to an excruciating death. He understands. And it is through Christ that you will find grace to help 
in your time of need. So I urge you, trust him today. Ask him for the faith to trust him every day, no matter what each day brings. Troubles will come. Enemies will rise up against you. Sickness may humble you. But Christ, who cares for the poor and the weak, will never forsake you.